I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. I know there has been a raft of Irish data, stroke news, on the economy, stretching from GDP data to trade numbers to house prices, all linked in various ways, of course. And I would like to give you a few minutes to take us through those in your inimitable fashion. In terms of news flow today, we've had a pleasant surprise for once on UK inflation. And that's part of a pattern now, which is that inflation in most jurisdictions is either coming in as expected, or in the case of the UK and the US most recently, coming in below expectations. And if you look at all of the charts, they're going in the right way. And I want to talk about what that means and delve into it in a little bit more detail. If we've got time, there are three articles I'd like to draw readers' attention to. One written by Paul Krugman on the UK, really interesting piece in the New York Times this week. Another written by somebody called Sam Bowman, who's a a UK writer. And that contains lots of very, very interesting stats that I want to take you through. And if we've got time, there's an article in the FT by one of my favorite writers of the moment, a guy called Janine Ganache. And he talks about the way in which uh, draining the swamp and all of that anti-elite thing initiated by Donald Trump is actually giving more and more power back to the elites via various interesting channels. So, Jim, why don't we start with you talking about all of the Irish news flow. It's funny, the week before last, we were struggling to come up with news stories to cover because things were really quiet. But I, I just get the sense that in the last week, so much is happening. There's the big global inflation story. There's a lot going on in China, which I find really interesting. There's stuff in the International Energy Agency about gas prices. There's just so much stuff 
hitting us at the moment. So, and of course, we've had, as you said, a lot of Irish data that I just want to summarize pretty quickly. Last Friday, the Central Statistics Office published a uh, revision to the 2022 national accounts. It's kind of historical, obviously, at this stage, given that we're now in the second half of 2023. But I still think there are interesting themes there that are having a significant impact on what's happening in the economy. The overall measure of economic activity, gross domestic product, expanded by 9.4% last year. Okay, and then when you strip out the intellectual property asset stuff, the aircraft leasing stuff, the profit repatriations by the multinational sector, this other measure of economic activity, gross national income star, expanded by 6.7%, still a very good performance, uh, but obviously not as strong as the GDP data suggest. Uh, Consumer spending on goods and services up by 9.4% last year, exports up by 13.9%. Just to put some absolute numbers on this, uh, GDP last year was worth 506 billion euro. You know, way, way ahead of anything we've ever seen in this country. But there were net factor outflows. This is basically what the multinational sector repatriates back to their shareholders in the home country, mainly the United States in Ireland's case. Those factor outflows, 143 billion. So basically that 143 billion is economic activity that was generated here and captured in GDP but ends up in the pockets of private citizens and fund managers and so on overseas. So doesn't really become part of the domestic economy. But GDP, as I say, 506 billion. And then when you adjust for those profit outflows, for aircraft leasing, for intellectual property assets, um, GNI star comes in at 273 billion. You know, a massive, massive gap. And it really, really is important in understanding the dynamics of what's happening in the economy and not be getting carried away with what the GDP data are suggesting. Um, and we, we mentioned um, in a past podcast the last couple of weeks that there's a really interesting paper by the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council um, explaining growth in, the United, in, in Ireland. So for, for anybody interested, I think, Um, It's worth looking at. Okay, Uh, as well as the 2022 data, we got revised quarter one growth data for Ireland. And during the quarter, GDP contracted by 2.8 percent, modified domestic demand increased by 0.1 percent, consumption by 0.1 percent and exports actually fell by one and a half percent. Technically, Ireland missed recession in the first quarter because GDP in the final quarter of last year was initially reported at minus 0.1 and that was revised up slightly to flat. So technically, we haven't seen two quarters of negative GDP growth, but you're you're talking about very minuscule stuff here. Um, But what's happening? You know, that, that, that is the big question. And a lot of domestic demand indicators doing well, you know, so far this year. 
um, consumer spending is okay, car sales are strong, and, and business investment at certain levels is reasonably strong, and the labor market obviously very strong, tax revenues continue to be generated at a very high level. So it's it's a reasonably good economic story. But what explains that GDP decline of 2.8% during the quarter was the fact that output from the multinational sector declined by 9%. Okay, so what's happening there? Well, I think you have to tie it back to what's happening on the trade front. And in the first five months of the year, and and let me point out that this has not happened for a long time, but in the first five months of the year, our merchandise exports fell by 5.5%. And within that, exports to the United States explain all of the weakness, down by 22.7%. Medical and pharmaceutical exports down by 15.4%. Organic chemical exports down by 4%. And here, sorry, I I don't want to totally tie us up in statistics here, but if you delve beneath those reductions in exports to the United States and the overall reduction in exports of chemical and pharmaceutical the, the exports of chemical and pharma to the United States fell by 27.6%. So there is a fundamental readjustment happening here, some of for technical reasons following the couple of years of mad stuff during COVID when these exports went through the roof. But I, I suppose there is a cautionary note here. You know, we need to watch very closely what is happening these exports and why it's happening and we don't have a full understanding. There is no cause for alarm at this stage, but it is very definitely um, a trend we need to keep watching. But it's that export performance that really explains the decline in GDP we've seen. Jim, you've mentioned this decline in exports generally and this decline in exports to the United States a few times now in recent months. And you just said it's not cause for alarm yet, at least. But the numbers you're quoting, the sheer size of them, look alarming to me on the surface. And um, particularly alarming is that we don't, as you say, have an adequate explanation for why it's taking place. Have you got any wild theories? There's a couple of things happening. I think the growth we saw and the levels that were reached during the COVID period uh, were certainly in the stratosphere. You know, it was definitely a break in the trend we've seen in recent years. So... Uh, definitely it was artificially inflated by COVID. So I think we're now getting a reset here, um, an adjustment. So these declines are coming off very a very, very high base. That's one thing. But I'm also hearing um, from some people working in the pharma industry that actually order books have slowed significantly. Why is that? Well, as I say, there was probably a lot of stockpiling during the two years you know we saw this inordinate growth as i say but it's possibly this this i guess is the potential cause for alarm here has this anything to do with the policy that was started by trump that biden has carried through as well trying to bring manufacturing back to the united states yeah that's really behind my question and i don't know the answer and i suspect it's not in the data yet to 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 enable us to make a proper determination but we do know that bidenomics as it is sometimes called is all about either reshoring or friendshoring which is huge it's massive because it's going to, if it continues in the way that it's already started it's going to reshape the global economy 
And I've mentioned this before, and other people are now finally starting to pick up on it. I mentioned Janen Ganesh earlier on, and his article is about this very, very topic. But in the first instance, for all sorts of reasons, which if we get time I'll go into today, and if not, at another time, Biden wants to bring manufacturing back to the United States. And if it doesn't come back to the United States, he wants it to be in a friendly, as opposed to an unfriendly country. Um, as you say, Jim, the open question is, is it already starting to be seen in the data? It'll be really interesting if we can to see if it's not a fall in demand for uh, these products, but it's actually a switching of production of these products. That would be a really interesting data point to try and get our hands on. So I, as you say, I think it's well worth keeping a very, very close eye on. But obviously, it has um, already affected the Irish data in a big way um, and be fascinating to, to watch going forward. It's, it's an interesting, evolving story that, that will have a huge impact on measured GDP here. So careful analysis will be required. Um, we're going to talk about inflation in the UK context in a second because pretty um, interesting numbers published today. Um, Irish inflation in June fell to 6.1% from 6.6% in May. Um, and energy is, is a key driver here. You know, energy prices falling uh, very, very sharply. Not yet been fully reflected really in electricity and natural gas prices, but it's petrol, diesel, home heating oil and so on. That's where the real impact is felt. One would hope given what's happening in global energy markets, particularly natural gas prices, that you know we will see this being reflected in electricity and natural gas prices at the consumer level. Uh, let's hold our breath on that. Um, service sector inflation here is running in excess of 10%. And mortgage costs, for example, in the year to June, up by 46.4%. That is a, a pretty incredible interest rate increase and the impact that's going to have on consumer spending as it feeds through and i know you've spoken about this a lot in the context of the united kingdom in recent times about the the the, the mortgage bomb that's about to hit uh, the us the uk household sector um but anyway that's the irish inflation story um I guess if the Central Bank of Ireland still had control over interest rates, which it doesn't, it would be looking at that service sector component. And that's where the concern um, would emanate from. Uh, we also got Irish house price data. Um, we continue to see a significant decline in the rate of house price inflation. In the year to May, national average house prices increased by 2.4%. That's the lowest rate of increase we've seen in some time. Outside Dublin, where 18 months ago prices were growing in excess of 17%, that rate of growth has slowed to 4.5%. And indeed, in Dublin, in the year to June, sorry, the year to May, average prices, residential prices have fallen by 0.2%. And I suppose to put all of this in context, you know, we'd seen a couple of years of incredibly strong growth in house prices. Um, and not surprisingly, given the increase in interest rates we've seen over the last 12 months, and we're approaching the first anniversary of the first ECB rate increase on the 27th of this month. But given those interest rate increases, and also given the level to which house prices had risen, uh, you know, there's huge, huge affordability issues there. So I think it's a combination 
of affordability problems and rising interest rates, which are obviously connected. But it's a combination of those factors is causing the market to slow down. Between December 22 and May of 23, national average prices have fallen by 1.9%. Outside of Dublin, they've fallen by 0.5%. But in Dublin, between September 22, which was the peak, and May 23, Dublin house prices have now fallen by 4.2%. So we're seeing a significant moderation coming through on the house price front. Um, I actually welcome this because uh, I think house prices had got to unacceptably and unsustainably high levels. So um, it's good to see, in my view, um, a gradual deflation of the housing market. You know, some of the air needed to be taken out of that market to prevent something more horrible from happening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I've read a few commentators uh, following up on, on this data, and there appears to be a very broad consensus about the future for Irish house prices, which is that these trends are likely to continue but they won't become precipitate. The house prices won't fall off a cliff. Um, there will not be a bursting of the bubble and all of those sorts of things. Most people, dare I say, Jim, using uh, inflammatory language perhaps, expect a soft landing for the housing market. I think that both of us would be uh, a, a wee bit more cautious uh, about making those kinds of uh, strong statements. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen to the housing market going forward. But one housing market that I am worried about is, of course, the UK because of the mortgage bomb that you uh, referred to earlier on. And we've got some good news for mortgage holders in the UK today because interest rate expectations going forward have fallen a lot just in the last few hours as a result of much better expected inflation data for the most recent month in the UK. Inflation has surprised on the downside. That's two in two weeks. Last week, it was the US. This week, it's the UK. And we still expect UK interest rates to rise further, but the peak has now been scaled way back. This time yesterday, we were forecasting, or the markets were expecting rates to go to 6.5-ish percent, and now they are below 6. So that's good news. And things like the share prices of house builders have rocketed today. We'll see if that is sustained. So it is good news, and it shows you that what goes up can come down. And I think that this is part of a broader trend. I do think that if you look at the charts of inflation, comparable inflation, 
they're all going in the right direction now, including the EU. One of the sources for this is, is an article in today's FT, actually, and you can see uh, a comparison of international prices uh, across the UK, Eurozone, France, Japan, and the US. One of the things that I hadn't been keeping an eye on, Jim, is you know that we, we talked for decades about how Japan was unable to generate any inflation whatsoever. Did you know what Japan's rate of inflation is right now? It's about 3.5%. 3.2%, according to this chart. Okay. Um, the US is, is there at 3 And Paul Krugman, the article I mentioned earlier on in my introduction, also had a chart in yesterday's New York Times. It shows you how things can change so rapidly, in which he uh, entitled this article, This Green and Expensive Land. You might think that might be a reference to Ireland, but no, he's talking entirely about the UK. And he begins his article with a chart, again, those international comparisons of inflation rates, which show the extremes being the US on the low side. And on a comparable basis, the US is well below Japan and the UK being at the top. The UK has now fallen uh, this morning, so he would have to redraw this chart slightly, but the story remains the same. And Krugman asks in, in this article, why is UK inflation so high? The same question I asked the other day in our podcast, the same question that's being asked by lots of economic analysts and commentators. And he's um, refreshingly honest in his article in which he says uh, two things. One, he doesn't know the intricacies of UK data in the way that he does the US. Um, but from what he does know, it's a bit of a mystery. And even I would concede that, yeah, there are elements to this that are tough to explain. But we have a list of suspects, and it includes things like the amount of the workforce that is on long-term sickness, or indeed short-term sickness, labour market problems generally, uh, Brexit, and uh, indeed a lot of other factors that essentially add up to the fact that the UK economy doesn't grow anymore. You mentioned Irish growth statistics there and how you have to interpret them Ireland, despite those G negative GDP numbers or flat GDP numbers, uh, are uh, it's a it's a it's a growth story, it's a domestic economic growth story, and the UK isn't. The contrast couldn't be starker, with all sorts of implications, not least for public sector finances. You're having a row now about how you're going to be spending the, the assumed 65 billion over the next few years. We're having a row about where we're going to get the extra taxes that we know that we need just to sustain public sector services at current levels, let alone increased levels. Now, what I would point uh, Professor Krugman to uh, in terms of getting to know the data is an article by somebody, a writer, a very, very good writer. It's a Substack piece um, that the, the author is Sam Bowman. And uh, he's taken a leaf out of your book, Jim, and quoted a whole bunch of statistics to support his claim, which essentially explains Professor Krugman's mystery, the data uh, that he goes through in an awful lot of detail. I won't go through it all now, you'll be pleased to know, but I will summarize it for you. Uh, first of all, in the title of his piece, in which he asserts, this is the title of Sam's piece, Britain is now a developing country. And his argument is that until the, our ruling classes, our elites in the UK, get their heads around the fact that Britain is no longer a leading economic country, it is a developing country on a whole host of metrics, they will not uh, initiate the right policies to get growth going. 
Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, prime minister in waiting, according to all of the opinion polls, said only yesterday that his priority is growth, growth, growth. What he won't tell us is how he's actually going to get it going. And Bowman's point, implicitly, I think, is that until people like Keir Starmer recognise the nature of the problem that Britain faces, they won't do what is necessary to get growth going. Because if you are a developed country, in economic jargon, that is that you are at the production possibility frontier. You, you have adopted all of the best practices and techniques, done all of the right things, pursued all of the right menu choices to get your economy to where it potentially could be. So think of the United States as the limiting example of that. Ireland, quite possibly, is, is close to this production possibility frontier that you can get. You can't get any more growth by by uh, doing the things that developing countries can do. And developing countries have got a whole host of menu choices to get themselves to that frontier, whereas frontier economies have to invent new stuff. There has to be technological change. Developing countries don't need to be technologically innovative. It helps if they are. But there is an awful lot of things that they can do to catch up with the practices, techniques, efficiencies, the way in which labor and capital is used in front, what we call frontier economies. Now, to assert that Britain is a developing economy is a pretty big call. But Bowman, I think, is pretty convincing about this in that he starts by pointing out that when you do GDP per capita, so the amount of income per head, properly measured, properly adjusted for uh, weird exchange rate changes, the United States is 39% richer than the UK. GDP growth over the last decade and nearly a half, so since 2010, GDP growth has been 47% faster in the United States than in the UK. The US is 38, 38% more productive than the UK. But since 2010, productivity growth has been twice as fast in the US than in the UK. So the magic of compounding there produces a huge gap. Americans could stop working in uh, September and take the rest of the year off and still uh, be as well off as the, uh, an average Brit that has to work to the end of the year. UK real disposable incomes are not forecast to return to 2021 levels, so two years ago, until 2027. The average starting salary for a newly qualified nurse in the US is over £42,000 compared to £27,000 in the most of England, and the gap only widens as their careers progress. He asserts, and I think he's quoting The Economist here, that a car wash manager in Alabama uh, earns more than $125,000 a year. That's three times the median UK salary. He goes on and on. And he talks as well about, and those are all about incomes, really. And he talks about inputs then. And he talks about housing, for example. The median price of a house in the US is half the price of the median house measured per square foot. Um, in energy prices uh, are... 7 cents per kilowatt hour in the US and 19 cents per kilowatt hour in the UK. Average energy use in the US per person is 77,000 kilowatts kilowatt hours. In the UK, it's 30,000. So it, we use less because it's more expensive and because we use less inputs, we have less outputs. 
average electricity generation per person in the US, so this is adjusted for population, is 12,700 kilowatt hours. In the UK, it's 4,800. Now, the reason why he's quoting these input costs for housing, for prices of energy, is because as a developing economy, these are things that you can do something about. You can do something about house prices. You can do something about energy costs. These are policy levers and policy buttons that you can pull and push should you wish to do so. And it's not until you realize this that you realize that it, none of this is easy. Um, we've talked so many times about how difficult it is to get house prices down. Um, but you've, you've got to do, you know, these are things that you can do to get yourself to the production possibility frontier. So it's pretty hard hitting stuff. And I think it's absolutely right. It reveals the scale of the problem. It teaches Professor Krugman why the UK has such a big problem. But uh, when Keir Starmer goes on about growth, 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 he needs to understand the scale of the problem that he faces and also the fact that it's going to take an awful long time to do anything about this. And he really does need to tell us how he's going to do anything about this. So I'll, I'll shut up there, Jim, because I, I know that's, that's really your bag, which is quoting lot, lots of numbers. But again... Um, to convince you, if nobody else, that the UK has, has a real problem. Um, I think that those numbers are pretty convincing. Uh, yeah, Chris, absolutely. Uh, very, very convincing. There was a piece in the Financial Times earlier this week about the crisis facing third level education in the United Kingdom. Um, huge funding issues there. And, and obviously, when there are funding issues in third level education, the quality of the output is ultimately going to suffer. Uh, there's a few factors that have been highlighted as driving this. One is, uh, you know, the increase in the cost of living and the cost of doing business has significantly increased the cost of running a university. Uh, but also um, Brexit is having an impact because at its peak, uh, the UK third level system was getting over a billion euro in funding from the European Union. Um, and the last year in which that funding was delivered, it was over 800 million. That has disappeared because of Brexit. So if, if you extrapolate that forward, you know, and the, the, the bones of the article really was that there is a funding crisis, that the quality of UK third level education is going to suffer. And if you think about it, that is really a disastrous spectre because, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, Imperial, UCL, all of these colleges were up there at the top of the Global Education League. Uh, they're being overtaken. Uh, well, I won't say they're being overtaken yet, but the Chinese universities particularly are really catching up, catching up fast. US universities very, very strong. So if the UK loses the comparative advantage it has had in its third level education offering. I mean, that's a major export industry destroyed in the UK. And of course, that then in turn feeds into the um, the quality of the workforce, productivity and all of that stuff. That is, of course, if you believe, Chris, that a good third level education is an important driver of productivity in an economy. Listen, don't get me started about Sunak's idiotic attack on higher education, because it couldn't be more wrongheaded. It couldn't be more different to this um, difficult analysis that I've just described that Sam Bowman and indeed lots of others, including myself, I've written extensively about this as well. In order to think about how we improve things in the UK, there's lots of things that we can do 
that we're not doing. And there's lots of things that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. And this is one of the latter. There's a wonderful article about all of this um, written by somebody called Hugo Rifkind in the London Times this week, in which he's talking about Sunak's attack on higher education and asking why on earth is he doing it? And he refers to an article that Sunak uh, wrote in the popular press this week when Sunak tried to explain. And the Prime Minister referenced a study conducted by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, yet another think tank that looks at budgetary policy in the round. And uh, he talks about the numbers that Sunak quoted. And I'll read you this paragraph from Rifkin's article, which, of course, the only reason I'm reading it is because I agree with it totally. Sunak's column in the newspaper rests upon a statistic that, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, one in five graduates in this country would be better off financially if they had not gone to university. So that's a quote from Sunak's article. And based on that number, he then goes on to say why he's having a go at these what he thinks are useless degrees. And as Rifkin says, this is true. But perhaps it's worth noting how the IFS presented the same facts themselves. And here he quotes the IFS. Most students get a big payoff from going to university. But going to university is a very good investment for most students. May, one may wonder whether our Prime Minister learnt the sophistry of portraying a glass four-fifths full as being a fifth empty. Perhaps it was while studying PPE at Oxford. And I think that last line is fantastic because, as you know, because I've done it on this podcast several times, I think the, the PPE-Oxford combination has been deadly for this country because there's clearly an awful lot of people with that background running things who have absolutely no idea how to run a bath, let alone a country. So I think one of the one of the policy interventions I would make would be I would stop letting anybody uh, go to both Eton and Oxford to end up with a PPE degree, because they usually end up as either a prime or cabinet minister uh, doing things like this. They are no nothing charlatans. Sunak is an empty suit, in my view, and this kind of thing reveals it to be true. And actually, it's a very ill-fitting suit. I don't know whether you've noticed these five grand suits that he wears that are all too small for him. <laughs> no, anyway. I, haven't, I haven't noticed, Chris. And uh, listen, Chris, we, we have South County Dublin here, okay? Uh, we'll wrap it there. Great to talk again. Um, lots more to talk about the next time. Uh, I, I suppose I'd just like to mark the fact that um, in, our, in response to our last podcast particularly, we got a very strong reaction from listeners both privately and in a slightly public forum uh, particularly in relation to the national children's hospital in down in st james's and also in relation to our discussion on rte um a lot of points very well made um yeah we, we, sh- we shall return to those readers we, we, comments we will and indeed. in a very careful way because several readers and listeners asked us not to quote them by name and uh, because they they talked about these things in a very sensitive way. One uh, RTE uh, comment in particular comes to mind. And we'll think about how we will reference these in a future podcast because obviously we have to respect reader confidentiality. But more generally, it's great that we are getting this audience interaction. We strongly encourage it. It's great when we get reviews on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Uh, We can't Uh, for all sorts of technical reasons, respond directly to reviews. We love them, good, bad, or indifferent, because 
they're very important for uh, publicizing the podcast and they, we find them very, very helpful. So please keep the reviews, particularly on Apple Podcasts, keep them coming. Um, but there have been lots of comments in those reviews that we will deal with in future podcasts, if not the next one, then certainly in ones that follow. So thanks, Jim, and I'll speak to you again real soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on The Other Hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 